welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. All right, so thank you so much everyone for joining us today and this is a series as part of the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association, TSRA, Early Career Webinars, uh, sponsored by Atricure, with the focus on structural heart disease and how to build one's career in this important area of our specialty. I am Jessica Luke, and I'm a cardiovascular surgery resident from the University of British Columbia and membership chair for the TSRA. This session will be moderated by myself, and Dr. Claudin Lewis, president of the TSRA. Tonight, we are delighted to be joined by four guests who were highly requested by our TSRA membership to speak on this topic. All right, thank you very much for, for the introduction, Jessica. Uh, the TSRA is an organization that represents the interests of the residents in training in cardiothoracic surgery. Without further ado, uh, introducing our panelists for this evening, including Dr. Anson Chung from the University of British Columbia, Dr. Ibrahim Sultan from the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Yoshi Kaneko from Harvard University Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Dr. Isaac George from Columbia University, all experts in the realm of structural heart disease. Thank you all for uh, participating today. Kicking it off, um, why don't we start with a question um, for everyone on what brought you all to the field um, of structural heart disease, and can you tell us what your current practice looks like? Maybe we can go in order of alphabet. <laughs> Let's start with University of British Columbia. First name or the uh, first name or last name? <laughs> <laughs> your first. Well, I'm, I'm the most senior, so I'll start first, I guess. You know, I, I've been in practice for 21 years and uh, part of the most senior members in the, on the panel this year. Uh, we, we, I, we got all started, you know, our training in Canada is a bit different. I'm, I'm sure we get into that a little bit about, you know, we are all trained differently. Uh, I gone for the general surgery route and that's three years of cardiac surgery, uh, which is not unsimilar to, the, uh, to what, what happened in the U.S., uh, and we were all trained pretty well, actually, a lot of time spent on cardiac surgery, and we were trained in structural heart disease in the surgical part for a long time. So I graduated in 1999, and um, uh, at that time, cardiac-based pathologists really not out there at, at all. So I did practice a lot of structural surgical structural heart disease in terms of mitral valve surgery and aortic surgery at that time. Uh, and how I started in the more cover-based uh, technology is that we happened to be one of the earliest centers to adopt the technology and actually helped out to develop it back in 2004 and did our first in man in 2005 in the transfermal with the Edward system uh, and transapical at that time. And, and, you know, obviously that if you are the first uh, getting things going, rolling and company and, and you make yourself, you know, a bit known to others, uh, they tend to come to you uh, for a lot of innovative and first demand uh, covered based uh, technology. And that is how we get going. And I think one of the most important part of our practice is that we do have a great partnership of our, our interventional cardiologists. And that's how we started in the beginning. We support each other to get the terrible first in men cases done uh, and gone through a lot of uh, errors uh, and, and, and successes, hopefully, you know, the, thank God. And, and that's how we get to, to where we are. Awesome. Uh, maybe Dr. George, wanna go next? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd love to give this eloquent answer about how it was, the, you know, the, the most amazing thing in the world, but it was just as equally how much I disliked other parts of certain parts of cardiac surgery. I mean, I, I did some time doing LVAD and transplant and I just could not see myself doing LVAD and transplant for the rest of my life. And <coughs> that's um, being, uh, against my, 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 my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, you know, and, and to be fair to, to this day, I think heart failure surgery and heart failure is the most interesting part of anything in the heart, you know, to me. Um, but I, it, it just didn't appeal to me. I, I knew that the lifestyle was challenging. 
Um, and I was really excited about the technology that was emerging. This was kind of 2010, 2009, 2011, um, where you know transcatheter valves were really starting to be um, in the forefront. Um, the clinical trials were just undergoing. We had, a, again, like Anson, uh, Anson Center, we had a very strong program that was um, integrated with both surgery and cardiology. So it was a great experience for residents who are interested in new technology. We had the opportunity to uh, not only be trained in cardiac surgery, but to spend time in the cath lab. We had very close relationships with our cardiologists. And so I got the opportunity to really um, gain skills in interventional cardiology. And that was really a lot of fun. Operating is, is still the best thing in the world, but there are days where you get a lot of satisfaction out of doing different things and the very techniques and the challenge that you get every day and doing something new um, has really been exciting for me. Awesome. And we have Dr. Koneko next. Yeah, uh, I'll agree with Isaac too. I did not want to go into heart failure. I mean, that was, uh, that was, that was definitely one of the main reasons for me as well. But um, in all seriousness, uh, my mentor, I have to give um, all the credit to my mentor, who was, um, who's Michael Davidson. So he was one of the first, um, first hybrid surgeon that actually trained in the cath lab and decided to dedicate his time to learn the catheter skills and became a structural surgeon. Um, Isaac had Matt Williams over at, NY, at New York, but um, Mike Davidson and Matt Williams were one of the first ones. And I got heavily influenced by him. And when I started as a fellow, um, a cardiac surgery resident um, as a fellowship in 2011, that's when the TAVR got first approved. So there was a lot of hype with this technology. And, you know, I thought it was a field that I really want to jump into. And I spent a year with Mike um, after I finished my formal training. And since then, um, I've been engaged in this field. As um, those of you who might not know, uh, Mike Davidson unfortunately passed away in 2015, and um, you know I've been at the same institution trying to follow his legacy. Yeah, you can, uh, Dr. Sultan, perhaps. Great, uh, thanks for having us and organizing this. So. Uh, first, to echo the last two speakers, I, I also did not like heart failure surgery, mostly because I didn't think I was smart enough to do it. Uh, but <clears throat> Anson's writing his hand, I like that. But the, uh, you know, I think it was more or less a natural evolution. I think by the time I was starting fellowship, is, is what Isaac and Yushi mentioned, you know, Tower was just getting approved and it was an exciting time. And I think the writing was on the wall pretty early on, right? And, and most of us on this call and others watching didn't go into this to do transcatheter work, right? I mean, I went into this to do to do heart surgery, and I still that's the uh, that's the most fun part of what we do. Uh, but you know, I love walking into a patient's room and telling them that listen, you know, whether you need a transcatheter repair replacement platform, or you need you know a minimally invasive surgery, or you need a big open operation. I can help you take care of all those issues, right? And, and I tell them, listen, I probably have some of the least bias talking to you about those options as opposed to somebody who just does one or somebody who does none of those options. Uh, and so that kind of concept was attractive to me and that that's really what, you know, from a practical perspective, I thought you ought to be able to treat, whether it's AS or MR from, from the least invasive to the most invasive uh, fashion. And that's really how I got into it. My practice is I practice adult cardiac surgery. I operate four days a week. It's mostly focused on aortic surgery uh, and, and heart valve surgery. And I spend one day in the hybrid OR doing transcatheter uh, stuff out of those four days and one day. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you as well to all the attendees. If you have any questions at all to uh, the panelists, please feel free to enter them in the chat and we'll ensure that we address them at the end of this call. 
and um, there seems to be a lot of hate against the uh, heart failure. <laughs> but uh, I would I would direct all of you to also watch our heart failure uh, webinar, um, also part of this series with um, TSRA and Atricure that's available where heart failure surgeons also talk about how much they love that specialty. So there you go. They probably talk about how much they hate structural heart, right? <laughs> Um, and moving on, um, so I wanted to ask you all, what do you all see as the landscape of structural heart disease? And specifically, what is the surgeon's responsibility um, professionally in this realm, as well as our evolving role? Like, do we need a paradigm shift in how we consider treatment in disease, such as uh, what Dr. Sultan says, like a, like a valve specialist, someone who can offer all the all the options. I would be eager for your thoughts and we'll start off with Dr. Chung. Yeah, I think that our specialty or in general, I think cardiovascular disease have, uh, has changed. Uh, this is not a new concept. I think this sort of what we call hard team approach to basically anything that we do. Um, and, and valve disease or structural valve, uh, heart disease is really no different. Uh, I think this is best for patient actually, this is best for patient care to actually have the case discussed among all the specialties and find the best solution for that particular patient. Uh, I personally, I think, you know, your different environment is a bit different because you all have a bit of a turf war between, you know, the different specialties. I think that we could organize in such a way that we take away the maybe the financial or power incentive of it. I think that's better off. Now, how you do that in, within your center is really, you know, local, local, uh, local problem. Uh, is no one single solution. I don't think that there's a local solution, you know, a single solution that you can solve that problem. I'm sure that you know, most of you agree. I think you, we might be a bit lucky that we were in a center that we work well together. I'm sure that our center that is a lot of uh, obstructions between among among each other. Thanks very much, Dr. Chung. I think we could say that for any um, specialty, really, not, not just cardiac surgery. So uh, that problem is not unique to just our own specialty. And um, moving on, how about you, Dr. George? What are your thoughts on this? You know, this is a really complex issue. I think everyone on the call has struggled with this. <clears throat> what is the role of the surgeon? I guess you can reframe the question. Um, and how do we prepare surgeons to be ready for what's happening right now and, and in the future. It really comes down to individuals to some extent. I think societies have largely stayed out of this uh, process. You know, we don't have great guidance from societies as to what thresholds are for a competence as to accreditation, as to what training skills are required we have really quite bare minimums for training programs in the two-year and the six-year programs. Um, so there's just a huge varied level of competence uh, in the practicing world among surgeons that are out there. And that ranges from people like everyone on this call who are truly experts to people that kind of walk through the room and, you know, uh, drive by a cath lab and, and that's fine. You know, it, it doesn't always have to be that everyone has to be an expert in everything. You know, some of the core questions that come up are, is aortic valve disease really a core specialty of cardiac surgery anymore? Is it something that's shared with cardiology? Um, you know, the other question that comes up is that should someone with AS be mandated to be seen by a cardiologist, you know, um, uh, before they get open heart surgery? These are all really tough questions. You know, personally, I think that it's great to have people like us on the call in the same way that there are people like Tyrone David or David Adams who are specialists in what they do. I think, you know, we have committed ourselves by and large to a specialty that's structural heart. And that means um, operating as well as spending time in the cath lab or in a hybrid situation where we do these kinds of procedures. And our uh, competent at a level that maybe not the average cardiac surgeon is. What is the base level of competency for a cardiac surgeon in structural heart? That's a good question. I think most people gain a relative experience that's uh, uh, amenable to being part, a functional part of a heart team. That doesn't mean that you have to do every single part of a microclip or every single part of a TAVR. I think that's probably asking too much. Um, but I think they have to know the language, they have to understand the concepts. 
and be able to make rational decisions. Again, I think it's a specialty. It's a sub super specialty to some extent. I think there are core concepts. You know, you could make the argument that TAVR should be a core um, uh, clinical competency for surgeons, but I'm not sure that every surgeon agrees with that. Um, I think the more rational way to say it is that they have to be a functional part of the heart team. They have to be able to fix a dissection in a TAVR, but they don't necessarily have to do every single part of the TAVR in the same way that, you know, a, a cardiologist is not expected to do the things that we do either. So I'll just add on that, do you think that, you know, uh, a catheter-based uh, technology or, or this special structural valve surgeon should be uh, a post-graduate uh, fellowship training in order to be more competent in it? Or do we think society would, should create a certification for those surgeons? I'll let Yoshi answer. Yoshi's spent a lot of time thinking about these questions as well, but... Um... You know, personally, I think we need some kind of specialty that's, a, that's an accreditation that allows you to say that you have competency. But in reality, people either gain the competency because of their own personal desires or they don't. And I'm not sure the piece of paper makes that much of a difference, but I'm interested to hear what everyone thinks about. Yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, that's a very, very interesting question that is really upcoming because of all the structural trained person that's coming out, not just from the surgical side, but also from the interventional cardiology side, you have to understand that they also don't have a certification system. And that is raising a lot of questions about this. And as a specialty, what should be the goal um, for the certification system? Is that to produce a competent person? So if that's the case, doing an additional fellowship to, to gain that accreditation will be a high bar, right? We're not going to be producing, you know, 100 surgeons that'll be doing TAVRs, which is a problem because of all the cardiologists that are coming out of practice doing TAVRs. So if the goal is to produce a certain number of surgeons that are doing TAVRs, then it has to be integrated into the current training system. If we're trying to train a specialist, like Isaac said, you know, if we're trying to train a specialist that really will carry this field forward, then those people should get additional training, not in the form of certification, but with a trained cath lab trained background that will support his career. I think that'll be super important moving forward. Oh, I, I, the reason I asked the question is that I actually, I think that the people practicing, I think they, I'm just drawing from experience for myself because I initially, few of us that Proctor put probably, but you know, pretty much the, the world of, of doing Tather. I go there and you know, and proctor them three to five cases. Then we certify them, either cardiologist or surgeon, to allow them to, to operate independent, independently. Now they're coming back, especially cardiologists, saying that, well, you can't do that. Uh, you need a one or two years extra training in order to do this, which is, you make it sounds very complicated which is not. Uh, I think this is again, a, a little bit of a, being obstruction, uh, you know, the obstructive uh, of what, you know, allowing surgeon to be more involved in it. Uh, and in, in you terms know, of, you know how to solve that problem. We should probably let Ibrahim talk too. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not sure I have anything more intelligent to add to what you guys said, but I mean, some of this is also self-serving, right? I mean, these are a bunch of folks on this call saying, you know, you need people to be trained, but, you know, I, I kind of take the opposite approach to what Isaac said. I think, I think you said very well that you have to have a surgeon who's a functional member of the heart team who can appreciate how to treat a patient in, in what way. But at the same time, I think it leads to a lot of, you know, hospitals and centers and practices, you know, where the surgeons kind of hang out in the control room or, or in the back. And I, and I think that, kind of uh, culture gets propagated as a cardiologist may move from one hospital to another, uh, assuming that that is the standard of care. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I always at least encourage our trainees and I say, listen, you should be comfortable doing really every step of the procedure in the, in the hybrid or the cath lab. You may not be good at all of them, but you should be comfortable, you know, getting those too. And it just being competency-based as, as you all have talked about. And, and I think just as very well, not every cardiologist can do everything we do, 
But as long as we bring something to the table that's, that's valuable, I think both from an intellectual standpoint and from a technical standpoint, uh, then I think we're you know, functional and productive contributors to that heart team. I think these, uh, thank you so much for bringing up the question, Dr. Chang, and, and for everyone's comments on this. I think it's particularly timely with the um, upcoming ACGME um, certification in structural heart training that I, I heard was um, coming down the pipeline eventually. And I, I think, um, like in summary, it, it's a, there's two different ways to think about it as one is as trainees, we should um, do our best in terms of learning the basic competencies and, and the basics of how to do TABI and to get um, ourselves out of trouble. Um, whereas there's the next level, which is specialists, um, being able to maneuver around TABI as well as transcatheter mitrals, tricuspids, um, and all the new and upcoming technologies as well. So uh, I don't think um, there's a there's a one, one right answer or the other, but it's certainly very, very intriguing. I'll, I'll hand it off to Claudin. Actually, um, we actually just discussed a question I was just gonna ask in regards to the training, so I'll probably forego that part. But specifically, um, can we as a panelist uh, think of certain skill sets or practices that pair very well with the field of structural heart disease? For instance, um, there are surgeons who do structural heart and do a lot of minimally invasive, probably most um, of the staff here, um, and aortic surgery. Heart failure and transplant, I think, are possibly feasible too. At least uh, what I've seen of recent is um, some of the surgeons who are very comfortable with wire skills um, are not necessarily always doing cut downs on ECMO explantation. They're being able to use perclose uh, in the OR and you know, shooting and seeing if there's flow with fluoro in the room. And I think some of those skills are gonna be needed um, as we move on and uh, increase the breadth of our competency in doing some of this work. So would you guys say that in your current practice model that there's a great pairing with the practice you do and having uh, structural heart skills and endovascular wire skills? Uh, yeah, wise skills, I think it should be part of the basic training for any cardiac surgery. I think at least in Canada that we, you know, the new pro the program that we have here, they all got for the cath lab, uh, our, our residents. That's part of the training. I think they, they do a one month in the cath lab and they have echo training uh, another month and they do a heart failure training in the, actually in the clinic. So those are part of the basic competency that we expect our residents to have. Uh, of course, you know, you have to be really fast with the wires. You need to be more training than that, but that, that just, you know, learn on the job. Yeah, I mean, I think our, our, our trainees come out very, very well trained with everything, um, transcatheter and percutaneous, you know, whether it's doing heart failure, whether it's doing valve work, whether it's doing aortic work, all of those fields have really integrated new technology, um, with catheter-based, uh, you know, skills. So I'm not sure that's the issue. I think the really tough question is how do you get people who really never learned it or, or who are practicing, who are five years out, six years out and are in a mid-level practice, they're busy cardiac surgeons and um, really getting them trained to a level that we have our residents trained or we have people on this call trained. I think that's the large majority of the population out there that we're talking about is cardiac surgeons that, that have that need. You know, it's not our fifth year chief residents or six year chief residents coming out They're They're going to do whatever they want. They will always be very um, successful in this next era. It's really all the people that we've left behind. But I think mind. since this is a TSRA meeting, I don't think the residents really care about that. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they probably care about themselves. <laughs> and, you know, to, to their point, I think um, we're, we're starting to learn how to teach the wire skills, right? When I did the Taver Fellowship, we only had like 50 Tavers that we can play with. So we were fighting over with the, uh, with the structural fellows, uh, interventional fellows. Now we have plethora of cases that we can, we can actually bring the residents to teach um, the actual case is actually a probably the, the best learning that you can get right and I think there's going to be more improved simulation tool that's going to come out um, that you can practice on 
Um, I know that industry is working on it. So I think there's going to be more and more skills um, that will be easily obtained for the current trainees. If they're invested, they have to be invested, right? If they're invested, if you have the motivation to do it, there's going to be much more opportunities when I was a resident. Um, that, that's for sure. And to answer Clauden's question, I think inadvertently we see more valve cases in the clinic, right? Because of the structural heart that we do. So say for instance, today's clinic, I had first patient that had two previous AVRs came with the third one that had a low coronary that was a surgical candidate. The second one was two AVRs and a PVL that comes in that probably needs a surgery. The third one anticipated, you know, multiple AVRs and yes, it was two AVRs that came in with a poor candidate for valve and valve. So I think that's what we're dealing with in clinic. And, you know, inadvertently we tend to do more valve cases um, as a result. Um, if you want to pursue minimal invasive, I think you can definitely do it. Just like Anson's doing, I think pairing it with heart failure is definitely possible. I think that um, that interventional heart failure or cardiac surgery field is completely untapped at the moment. That's going to be another exciting field in the next five years. So I think there's a lot of opportunities out there and having a wire skills will only help. And any thoughts, Dr. Sultan? No, again, I, I love being the last person because I don't have to say much, but uh, <clears throat> probably because I have an early bedtime usually. But no, I, I think all those points are great. And, and the reality is once you start, and, and you see this as, you know, as a faculty or as an attending, once you start a practice and you're doing trans catheter work, generally you end up seeing the same. I mean, I had a very, very similar clinic to the same exact reason. Uh, or, or patients who are too young and, and probably are not appropriate tower candidates, right? I mean, the, everyone wants a, the least possible invasive option, right? Nobody should ever come to your office and say, you know what, I want to have a stenotomy and I'm ready for it. That's just not normal, right? And so I think most people come in for asking for the least invasive option. And then, and then depending on what's appropriate, you kind of go into those recommendations. And just being involved in those conversations, understanding how to treat the disease processes, and talking to your referrings and your partners, you know, in, in cardiology and cardiology will help you build that kind of practice. So at least for me, I can tell you that, you know, I do more aortic surgery and more heart valve surgery because I think I'm involved in transcatheter work. And, and I was able to catch on to the transcatheter uh, heart valve work much quicker on or much early on because I had a lot of experience doing endovascular aortic work, for instance, which I would normally just do on my own without a partner. So I think they're all complementary skills that, you know, in the end, do pay off. Thank you so much. That's a very important thing that you just mentioned, I think, because since we do everything, we have a balanced view. Uh, you know, we give the, actually the, the patient a bit more confidence that we are not suggesting a, a solution for them that is actually based on our own preferences, uh, based on evidence, and we think that best for the patient. I mean, I mean that way, I think that's, you know, most of how special should be practiced that way. So I have a question for the group because we're talking about, you know, when you get to, uh, you know, distinctions between skill sets, there's a difference between doing an AVR, let's say, and a David. There's a difference between doing an arch and a thoraco and, a, um, you know, an ascending, let's say. And in the same way, there's a difference between doing a straightforward transfemoral taver and a complex taver or um, a complex clip or a TMVR or a tricuspid. You know, the level of imaging, the level of expertise, the level of skills all change. You know, what is the, um, what is the minimum that we need to do as surgeons to be good surgeons in a particular specialty, as well as trying to be a pioneer in something else? I mean, how do we tell our, our trainees, look, you should be this surgeon and this other person as well in this field. It's a very hard thing to do. In heart failure surgery, you're an operating surgeon. In aortic surgery, you're kind of taking care of a very similar problem, and you have a lot of tools at your ex expense. But these are very different skill sets. How do you guys manage that with, with your trainees, and how do you manage it personally? Yeah, thanks, Dr. George. I, I think this is a really important question, and I would be eager to hear everyone's thoughts because it's certainly hard to be uh, a jack-of-all-trades and master of all, so eager to hear from you all. 
I think it's hard to be good at everything, right? I mean, I, I think some of this is determined or determined for you by the job market when you come out of training. Uh, and I think if you really want to be good at certain things, I mean, I would, I probably, I can tell you very comfortably that I'm more comfortable doing a third time redo total arch or, as opposed to a mitral clip on my own, right? I mean, I just, I know that. So I don't fool myself saying that somehow I'm going to walk in and be comfortable doing clip down. Like, so I think you kind of pick and choose where you gravitate towards and, and, and stick with that. And I think a lot of folks and, and hospitals and centers are not only have just structure heart expert, but TAVR experts, TMVR, CLIP, tricuspid, et cetera, or mitral and tricuspid may fall under the same umbrella. But I think people are starting to differentiate that more and more, at least on the cardiology side. And I think we'll likely see some of that on the surgical side too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the jack of all trades disappearing, the dinosaurs now. I think that, uh, I mean, I do a lot of different things, including heart failure and transplant, LVA and all those things, but, but that is unusual. Uh, and I don't do thoracal abdominal. I don't do, you know, the aortic surgery. Uh, I don't do uh, uh, endographs. It's, it's impossible to, to do everything good and good at it. And I, I, I think that we don't, I don't personally don't tell our trainees that you need to be good at everything. What I tell them that I think you should go to with your passion. It's not necessary. And a lot of people say, well, where the job is. The job may not be what you want. You, you, you would like to live your life with. I think that you need to be passionate about the special area that you're interested in. Once you're in it, you're going to be good at it, then you'll find a job. That's my suggestion. So, you know, I, I, that's what I would tell them. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Ibrahim said. I think in the future, um, the, the disease, the, the valve, the, the, sorry, the valve disease will be different, differently managed based on aortic valve disease, mitral valve disease, and tricuspid valve disease. So with the number of TAVRs that we're doing, I think TAVR, transfemoral TAVR will be the basic of any structural heart skills that we will be doing. And I think for a standard graduate in 2025, I think they have to possess a skill to do a transfemoral TAVR if they're going out and practice in the United States. Um, so that will be the bare minimum. And I think above that, say for instance, Basilica procedure, um, when we're doing um, TAVR, right? And for mitral clip to do a transeptal puncture and to do a mitral clip. And then tricuspid, which the imaging becomes extremely difficult to understand. Um, I think that's on another level. And I think those might not be able to to, to completely gain that skill during your standard training. And those may be for more advanced fellows. Um, I don't know how it's going to shape out in the future. Um, you know, we had that STS Tavern meeting and Mike Reardon was saying that, you know, in 2025, he thinks that all Tavern will be single operator um, with the reimbursement and how that's going to change the landscape. Um, so I think we have to have our trainees do a transfemoral Tavern as the basics. Um, in my opinion, but beyond that, it's going to be tough to teach transeptal to the sur surgical residents if they're, you know, coming there for a month or two. I don't know what you think, Isaac, about that. No, I mean, I, I agree. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I think, um, I think you're going to have to choose what you want to do. Um, part of it depends on location and, um, uh, the need at the time, as Ibrahim said, part of it depends on what you want to do. You, you never want to be stuck doing something you don't like doing, obviously. Um, the easy lines that have kind of been delineated um, has been TAVR and aortic, maybe uh, they're, you know, intimately related, maybe more so than um, the mitral side and tricuspid side uh, and, you know, mitral, mini mitral surgery, robotic surgery, et cetera. So. Thank you so much, everyone. And um, moving on to our next question, structural heart disease um, is a specialty full of new technologies as we have heard already in this webinar with lots of new devices and opportunities for collaboration with industry. Um, what do you see as the benefits of these relationships and any tips on how to balance innovation and patient safety? Uh, we'll start off with Dr. Chung. Wow, that's a, that's a <laughs> heavy question. 
you know, I've seen it all uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of things that we consider, I guess, experimental early on and, and unfortunate, unfortunate outcome. And, and, but I think you need to balance it. I think that you, you, this is a more ethical question than, than, than I guess you have to look at the, the overall, what do you think the, the, what the eventual benefit will be? How do you actually start it with, uh, the, with the industry? That is a, a very difficult. I mean, you cannot just go to some, you know, get some industry or some startup and say, well, I want to help you to, to develop this. It's not, that is not something that you could do. Uh, you, you need to have gained, first of all, your uh, basic competence and you have to be expert in that area and then you have to known to them. And you have to be lucky at times that you work in center that, that are involved in those technology in order to partner with them. So it's not something I could actually tell you that exactly, you know, exactly how you're gonna do it. Um, I think more now, I think with the, a bit more relaxation of FDA, I think they allow you to, you know, this is in US, they allow you to do a bit more uh, organized fashion to develop new technology, uh, which is not possible in the past. I think this is actually very encouraging to allow the acceleration of development of those and bring them to a clinic a bit earlier than we used to be. In Canada, it's a bit different. We are still allowed to do a lot of uh, special access that are not possible anywhere else in the world. Thanks very much, Dr. Chung. And how about you, Dr. George? You know, the interaction with industry is one of those two-edged, double-edged swords that um, you have to be very careful with, obviously, um, you know, especially in clinical trials, you know, we see the discourse and the, the um, consternation and confusion that cardiology sometimes has produced with their uh, relationships with industry and um, how that affects clinical trials, which it, it may, and it probably does. Um, that being said, a lot of the innovation and a lot of the advancement that we have in, in the field right now is is due to the funding, backing, resources, research, and expertise of industry. You know, we just, we can't do it. We can't do it in CTSN and we can't do it in single sites. We compare the level of data and level of evidence that come out of these trials to what we publish in surgery. And, you know, it's just not, it's not comparable. So we have to rely on industry. I think really making um, yourself known in a particular area uh, a skill, a technique. That's one of the ways that people will recognize you. You publish it, you publicize it, you, um, you teach people, you help other people do this, um, whether um, it's surgical, whether it's transcatheter, that's always a good way to, to get people involved. Um, and I think it's been really enjoyable working with industry. I think I've learned a lot. I've had, you know, again, the opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I was in a different center. So I'm very keenly aware of that. And I think that's one of the advantages of being at an academic center um, as opposed to kind of a mid-level or smaller private practice. Those are those personal decisions in life that you kind of make um, because I'm in my, you know, 1200 square foot apartment in New York city right now and not in some mansion in the Hamptons. So <laughs> who wants that? <laughs> How about Dr. Kineko? Yeah, I, I echo what Isaac said. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. It's we can't do it without the industry support, and you know, I think you have to you have to have great relationship because you know a lot of the technologies that we use is here because of the industry, right? So I think we have to respect that. But on the other hand, I think for the residents that are currently training you have to really think about this conflict of interest really, really well before you go into practice. Because I think the, the eyes from the society or even peers might change in the next five to 10 years. I know that there's been a lot of Twitter feed about um, you know, people who have conflict of interest writing guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that several physicians in my institution has no conflict, conflict of interest because they are in the guidelines. You know, they state that they want to be in the guidelines. So they, they 
purposefully avoid any conflict of interest. And, you know, that may become the norm in the future. So, you know, I strongly recommend you guys to think about this very well, because I didn't. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm starting to think that maybe I should have thought about it a little more. So. I think we're so closely integrated with industry too. And Chrysler, as you guys all said, it is very, very deeply tied. And a lot of our progressives has to do with that. Uh, but at the same time, I think it, it, you have to be a little bit of a skeptic and, and kind of bring your scientific mind. You know, a good example is, you know, each tower valve, the list pricing, you know, is, is anywhere from the high 20s to, you know, low $30,000. You know, what would a for-profit organization or industry support, you know, a valve like that or, you know, a $3,000 mechanical valve? I mean, you know, there's there's a lot more that happens behind the scenes that I think we're not privy to. But having said that, I don't think we would have been able to make this much, you know, progress in cardiovascular surgery and cardiovascular medicine without industry support. No question. Thank you, everyone. Handing it back to Claudin. All right. So my next question um, is regarding the mitral valve landscape. And this is probably a deeper question, probably um, much longer than we can probably delve into, as you guys are fully aware, at 9.40 p.m. of Eastern Standard Time. But the mitral valve landscape, I've seen a PowerPoint slide, um, 2019, where there were at least uh, three edge-to-edge -edge devices, so many mitral valve replacement type of um, devices, um, other approaches, some affecting the annulus. There are... Uh, a whole host of opportunities to intervene on this pathology. And we do know functional degenerative are very different. Going back to what Dr. Koneko had mentioned, as we are potentially decoupling um, from the two physician um, type of group between heart surgeon and cardiologist, what do we think will arise over the course of our careers between new therapeutics, new perspectives, opportunities for surgeons to you know, gain an opportunity to be an expert in this realm, especially as it pertains to the mitral valve outside of open heart surgery? I know this is a tough question, but just wondering um, from you guys' perspective. Wow, that's a, uh, I think it's just like Yoshi, what Yoshi mentioned, I think the mitral valve is even a different, higher level uh, from the basic uh, training that we, you know, in the, during the residencies. Uh, I don't think, I mean, even just regular surgical mitral valve repair. And I think during your residencies, how many valve repair, not even, I'm not talking about complex repair, but basic repair that you have done before you graduate. Not unless you're in a really good high volume academic center, you might not get that or successful referral center. Uh, so I think if you don't even get that, how are you going to get to the next level, a catheter-based technology to fix the mitral valve? So I think that it's just some fundamental change has to in, in the training to get surgeons ready, at least for the, the competencies of a regular surgical valve repair. Then in the, in the same time in that program, I integrate them into some wire-based uh, valve technology. I'm not, I'm not sure that this is something that I think the base, basic level that we can answer that. So how do you get there? But I think in the future, I think in, it's gonna take a bit longer you know, in the next 10 years, you're going to be a technology that approve uh, in, US, in North America that allow you to either, well, both repair and also replacing uh, the, the mitral valve full wire. Dr. Koneko, want to take a stab at this question? Tough question. <laughs> this one's a really tough question. Um, well, so, you know, now back five years ago, when Mitral Clip was first approved, people were saying, oh, it's just edge to edge repair. You know, who's, if you're going to do a surgical mitral valve repair, would you ever do a mitral valve repair with edge to edge repair? I mean, that was what my colleague told me. And, um, you know, fast forward five years later, Mitral Clip volume is growing. So, I think the transcatheter mitral space will continue to grow. Um, but, in my opinion, I don't think the, uh, the number will surpass the tavern numbers. I mean, we, we always did more AVRs than the mitral cases, right? People talk about more prevalence of mitral valve disease, but um, I think the surgical volume, um, I think aortic valve was always, um, always surpassed the mitral surgical cases. So I don't know if the volume will increase. Um, 
the transcatheter mitral replacement technology still has a fundamental problem, not being able to overcome the LVOT obstruction. And a lot of the technologies other than the HCH repair has been struggling to, to show a good result. Um, I think the cordal repair has some promising results, uh, which may become more prominent. But um, I think at the same, at, you know, at the same time, I think we have to make sure that we provide a good surgical outcomes in mitral valve disease as well. I mean, that's our duty. Um, and I don't think anybody, everybody needs to do a complex mitral valve repair, but we have to be able to do a good surgery. And I think we have to, we have to not forget that we're surgeons at the end of the day. So I think that part of the training has to be checked before we take on to these complex transcatheter technologies in the future. Very difficult question to answer in a short period of time. Awesome. All right, just going to move on to the next question. Sure. Does uh, Dr. George or Sultan have any thoughts on this or? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like anything, I think we're seeing, you know, it's a different, it's a different valve has been mentioned. It's a different patient population. I mean, the only one thing I would add um, to the conversation is that um, functional MR is such a growing prevalence. We know that treating it early um, is beneficial to patients to make them live longer and to feel better. Um, we do a lot of things that are minimally invasive um, to make people feel better for quality of life rather than make people live longer. So I think that's one of the reasons why we see such a increase in safe, uh, but maybe less effective procedures um, for quality of life. And I think uh, CLIP and TMVR and some of these other mitral therapies will fall into that category. I think tricuspid will fall into that category. It's clearly not, we're not going to make people live longer when you have severe, severe TR, but they will certainly feel better. So I think because that heart failure population is, is growing so rapidly and is one of the largest um, patient populations out there, I think there will be more and more people that take on these treatments. Yeah, I, I would add, I would actually add to that. I think, you know, and, and, and going back to what you mentioned, yeah, you know, we have tremendous difficulty enrolling in TMVR trials right now. And, and, and that's, you know, one of the reasons because there's a lot more complexity attached uh, to that than, than you would see otherwise. I think when the when the the invasiveness of the procedure changes, the bar, the threshold, the result that you would live with also changes, right? And I think that's that's what you see with, with CLIP, quite frankly, and a lot of the higher, when, as we gravitate towards, you know, low risk, you know, or even intermediate risk with repair MR and other studies, I think we'll get a better view of, of how we're gonna address Thank you very much, everyone. And um, moving on, so cardiac surgery is a team sport and dependent on a multidisciplinary collaborative team to ensure optimal patient outcomes, as we all know. So structural heart disease is no different and is also highly dependent on a healthy and collaborative heart team. Can you share with us how the heart teams at your institutions work and any advice that you would have on how to cultivate and sustain a healthy heart team for structural heart disease. We'll start off with um, Dr. Chen. So we, you know, we don't capture every, you know, 100% of the patient that coming, you know, with valvular heart disease, you know, heart team. However, we got a good portion of it. So every Wednesday, we meet for two hours, two or two and a half hours, you know, 46, 630. We gone through every single patient that refer for uh, aortic uh, for TAVR potential, uh, a cover the cover the base mitral technology and tricuspid. And we go through those patients uh, along with usually at least two to three cardiologists, uh, echo the person heart failure cardiologists and two to three surgeons uh, and and also nurses nursing staff, and we gone through all those patients and we make a decision on them for the best possible therapy for. I would say that you would say, well, what percentage of this patient gone for different therapy? And I would say that 80% will, if they are for aortic disease, they will likely get some, some form of TAVR, either transfermal or alternative access. Then 20% of them will actually get to surgery. Uh, I think because they would refer specific, the young patient, we, you know, we screen out, they don't get discussed in the TAVR clinic. 
and and they will you know about twenty percent of them end up having surgery because of multiple other reasons, uh, uh, access or uh, LVOT calcium, uh, you know coronary access etc cetera, etc. Cetera, and then for the mitral side, uh, you know, we, we actually at the moment, we do not have a organized mitral tricuspid clinic. So those patients we discuss at that particular time are patients that refer specifically for either a tricuspid or mitral catheter-based technology. And all of those, I would say only half of them qualify, I would say for a clip type of technology. And now the half of them, actually we, cons we consider them for surgery. Uh, or uh, medical therapy or refer for transplant. We do have a half failure cardiologist in MOV and, and, and that's some of those patients came from them and some of them we bounce it back to them and say that patient was just bad transplant. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Chung. And how about Dr. George? Our, our valve center works very similar to what Anthony is describing as well. We have an intake kind of from all parts of the hospital into our valve center. Um, and these are patients that are surgical, clearly patients that are not surgical, clearly, and we kind of figure it out. We take a day um, and a long meeting and just go through everyone. We sit, we look at the imaging together. We argue together. Um, we uh, make decisions together. It's a little painful sometimes, but we get through it. So how many hours do you spend on that a week, you think? Well, I mean, you know, so our clinic is a combined clinic as well. So um, I do a, a clinic on Monday and it's all day. So we see all patients um, and I see them with one of the cardiologists. So we see 20, 30 patients that day um, and we go in the room together. We look at the imaging together. We talk to the patient together. Um, we have additional clinics on different days that are also split up, even though they're still heart valve kind of clinics. Um, and then we, we sit and we group for, you know, it's usually a, a, like you said, a two, two and a half hour meeting uh, one day a week and really kind of grind out the details. Yeah, the reason I asked you is that I think I'm just trying to tell the trainees on, on, on the line here is that you have to make an effort to be there. You have to make an effort to see the patient and then do be at, at those runs to make your, yourself uh, hurt. Uh, you, you're not going to expect that all those patients or cases are going to drop to your lap. So I think that that's what I'm trying to get at. Isaac, is uh, mitral and the tricuspid patients all bunched up in the valve center too? Everything, yep. How does it work um, at your place, Dr. Kineko? We, we have a very similar model to what uh, both Anson and Isaac explained. The only difference is that we do see patients separately. Um, in the same spot, we sit next to each other, but we see patients separately because I don't think I can stand and listen to my interventional cardiologist talk all the time. So, you know, we, we see patients separately. Um, but, you know, we spend a lot of time together. And I think the key is, um, number one, to spend a lot of time with your partner. I think that's very important. And I think what makes it really tough is like, just like any relationship, right? You can't just like them. They have to like you as well. So I think that's the part that's difficult and doesn't always work. Um, so you have to have the right partner. I think that's very important, but spending time together is very, very, I think it's a key. This is like, this is a uh, very, very valuable marriage advice here that you're giving. <laughs> I'm no expert Marry your interventional cardiologist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that should be the slogan. <laughs> How about you, Dr. Sultan? How does it work at your place? Yeah, it's the same concept. We have a combined valve clinic. It's, it's every Tuesday. It's parallels my clinic as well, my aortic clinic. So, you know, I have my aortic clinic going at the same time. The valve clinic runs, which is primarily run by our NPs and you know, we don't go in and see them together, but we talk about the patients together. We look at their imaging and typically one of us will see the patient before the other so we can keep clinic moving along. Uh, otherwise it, it kind of goes on, uh, you know, for, for a long, long time. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think as long as you communicate and you talk and every, you know, for Taver every Monday morning at, you know, between 6.30 and 7.30, everything stops and, and that's all we talk about. And we talk about, you know, we review some of the complicated cases, some of the cases we don't agree on. And we do the same thing for mitral fred cuspid Thursday morning. So, uh, you know, apart from combined clinics, we do have uh, discussions, you know, and some of these are nuanced discussions, whether it's, it's access, type of valve, 
uh, you know, concomitant disease that we want to treat, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you very much. Question for the group for the last question. Uh, any tips on job considerations or um, just tips for the new surgeon specializing in structural heart disease um, coming out of training? Um, any ideas and, and closing thoughts? I'll start by saying it's the same kind of advice that you um, would give for a surgical, you know, a, a busy surgical job. I think it's to do cases. I think you have to gain that confidence, gain that experience early. Um, you have to really, really do cases and you have to be busy early on. And I think that's where you build a, a foundation of clinical knowledge that you can then grow on. Um, and then you can branch out and do other things, but you have to get that core skill set of what you want to do for the rest of your life um, ingrained early. It helps to have good mentors, help people that will help you out, people that you trust, um, and people that will teach you. Just like as you should say, is a marriage, and you actually marriage to your group. If you don't like the people you work with, doesn't matter much how much financial reward they give you, it means nothing. Uh, I think the initial mentorship uh, for starting a career are very important. Having have them scrub in with you, I didn't have that, you know. But you know, but now we we all know that it's important, and we all do that for our, our younger junior uh, staff. I think they need to have come in and help you out, and 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 actually maybe stray away from those. Tough cases, you know, they would give you the easy cases to begin with. They establish you to have a good reputation uh, before they 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 put you into into the fire pit. Uh, I think uh, it, it, I think it's a it's important to 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 do that. And I think that it, when you go for a job interview, I'm just giving you, a, you know, is that do not talk to the the boss. Talk to the people that work under him or her. Talk to the anesthesiologists and and the you know the other. Uh, uh, medical people. That's how you find out the working environment. Talking to the boss itself is useless, in my opinion, because they is always going to be the best ever. Yeah. That center you're going to work in. Uh, you know, this is just general rule. I think that you need to to do that. If you're going for a structural heart job interview, um, I think the, the person that you're interviewing with from the cardiology side is almost as important as your chief. Because um, that's the person that you will likely be mentored by. Or if there's a partner, that future partner that you're going to work with, you want to know, you want to make sure that you get along with them, right? If he doesn't look like a good guy, or there are some interviews that, um, you know, none of the interventional cardiologists interviewed you, right? That should raise a little bit of red flag that, um, that they're not really collaborative. And I think the more people you talk to will be helpful. And I think that um, that cardiology side of the interview in this structural heart program is actually very important. And unless you want to go down a pathway where you're only doing transcatheter work, I think, I think the goal should be you want to go to a rich practice where you can, you know, there's, a, there's plenty of cases for, for you to work with, plenty of patients that are going to come in and, and folks who are going to mentor you. I think that's very, very important. I, I didn't have that. And I'm sure everyone can tell their worst stories, but, you know, I wish I had somebody who'd scrub with me for the first you know, a few months. And I think I would have probably learned a lot. And, you know, that's something we did. Anyone who we hire, we do that uh, now moving forward. And I never thought as a cardiac surgeon that I would take a job based on my interview and meeting with the chief of cardiology here in Pittsburgh, but I did. I mean, I never thought that that would be possible, but, but I, I, I remember, I still remember meeting him in his office, talking to him and, you know, and I knew that, that this would be a great place for me to work at. And again, majority of my practice was going to be open surgery. But having said that, you know, to to Yush's point, I think the the cardiologists that you meet with are going to be your partners. I spend significant more time with our cardiologists and interventional cardiologists than I do with the general thoracic surgeons in our department, for example. Right. So that's a you know use that as a barometer or a guide, and that'll that can help. Awesome. All right. Well. 
uh, as trainees, we look at this field as incredibly exciting and strong and constantly changing. Um, so I just wanna thank you all for uh, this conversation and allowing others to have a closer look at the structural heart disease as a specialty. I would like to thank Atricure for giving us the platform and opportunity to have this uh, free conversation. This was an, a valuable conversation. And on behalf of myself and uh, Jessica and the TSRA, uh, thank you for the time and the insight in this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much.